From the man in the pork pie hat, the stark beauty of the American Southwest held a certain mysterious allure. From its frigid heights to its sweltering valleys, it had captivated his imagination since his first days trail riding as a boy. The family's spacious New York apartment overlooking the Hudson and even his beautiful villa with its views of the Golden Gate Bridge didn't compare to the small rustic cabin on that desolate mesa. The mountain ranges stood with a silent gravitas that he found both serene and uplifting. It was his muse, and he had brought doom to its doorstep. Maybe. But maybe it would work. The clock in the base camp mess hall read sometime after midnight. He would know soon enough. And if it did work, well then, the real trouble would begin. The pounding of rain on the tin roof snapped him back into reality. The cigarette in his hand was smoked down to his fingers. He lit another. Was it his fourth or his fortieth? He couldn't even remember. He had rolled them one after another, manically smoking them down to the butt all night. Lightning flashed through the windows, and the sound of thunder shook him to his core. His nerves were already at the breaking point, but the night was still young. Maybe Baudelaire could distract him. He picked up the well-worn book from the table and opened it. I am like the king of a rainy country, rich but powerless, young yet feeling wintry, no longer flattered by the obsequious bow, bored by my dogs and by every other creature now. Nothing brightens my day, not the hunt, not falconry, not the dying people below my balcony. My fool's grotesque balloting does not distract me from my malady. Carved with fleur-de-lis, my bed is a tomb, while sequestered ladies who think every prince of bloom hope by their impudent dress to make me their own. They will never coax a mouse out of this young skeleton. Shall we turn to those who claim they turn lead to gold, though they and we remain the living dead? I bathe in the baths of blood the Romans brought us. Back in the days of great power and purpose, even they cannot warm this dazed cadaver slipping into the place where the salt has lost its savor. He closed the book and pushed it away. It was as if the poet was clawing at him from across space and time. He would find no sucker tonight. He gulped down the last of his coffee and lit another cigarette. A middle-aged balding man with a security badge hung on his neck hurried in from a darkened hallway. He scanned the room. Finding his quarry striking a match in a corner, he approached nervously. Another lightning strike and the pounding of rain added urgency to his walk. The man with the cigarette looked up. Their eyes met for just a moment before he nodded in greeting. We have to postpone, the hurried man said. If we don't, there could be a catastrophe. The wind and rain could spread fallout for miles. The entire mesa could be covered. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people. He trailed off. 
The man with the cigarette stared at the table and said nothing. He took a long drag and eyed a portly army general pacing the room in agitation. We can't, he said after a long pause. The weather team assured me the storm will clear. As a precaution, we're pushing back till 5 a.m. It has to work, and it has to be now. The door opened, and a junior officer soaking wet from the storm went to speak with the general. They exchanged words briefly, and then both started for the exit. Before going through the doorway, the general turned back in. Oppenheimer, he yelled. It's time. Robert crushed what remained of the cigarette into an ashtray on the table, collected his capricious Baudelaire and his pork pie hat, and silently left the room. It was zero minus three hours, 30 minutes to Trinity. This is Luminaries. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many. I have a dream. The new world is here now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. America needs a tidal wave of the old-time religion. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And where there is despair, may we bring hope. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. J. Robert Oppenheimer was born April 22, 1904, to Jewish parents in New York City. His father, Julius Oppenheimer, was from a small town near Frankfurt, Germany. He immigrated to New York City in 1888 to join a suit importing business run by his father's cousins. When he arrived, he spoke no English, but was determined to make a path for himself in America. Julius excelled in the business, and by 1893, he was a full partner in the firm. Sometime after this promotion, he met Ella Friedman, an art instructor with her own private rooftop studio in Manhattan. Her delicate and reserved manner contrasted against Julius's hearty and bombastic personality. Despite their differences, they were an excellent match. They were married in March of 1903 and moved into a gabled stone house on West 94th Street. Soon after Robert's birth, the family moved into a spacious 11-story apartment on Riverside Drive overlooking the Hudson. The apartment occupied the entire floor and was lavishly decorated with fine European furniture, as well as art by Picasso, Rembrandt, Villard, and Renoir. Ella ran a house of very high standards. Excellence and purpose was a motto that young Robert heard continually as a child. When Robert was four, the Oppenheimers had another son. The boy, named Louis, died as an infant due to a condition called stenosis of the pylorus, a condition that made it nearly impossible for him to digest food and liquids. From then on, Ella became extremely protective of Robert. Cloistered in the Riverside apartment, he developed three solitary passions, poetry, blocks, and collecting minerals. By the age of 12, Robert began communicating with members of the New York Mineralogical Club about the different geological formations he studied in Central Park. 
One of these correspondents was so impressed with Robert's work that he nominated him to become a full member. His nomination was accepted, and Robert was invited to lecture before the society. He was terrified at the thought. Julius, however, encouraged him to accept the honor. On the night of the event, Julius and Ella proudly presented their son to the Mineralogical Club. The members could not keep from laughing as their 12-year-old correspondent assumed the lectern. From atop a wooden box, Robert gave his prepared speech and accepted his induction to the club to ruckus applause. Throughout his young life, Robert's parents continued to encourage his scientific and intellectual pursuits. Ella became pregnant again, giving birth to Robert's younger brother Frank in 1912. It was around this time that Robert was enrolled in an elite private school run by the Ethical Culture Society. This young sect of Judaism was founded in the 1870s by Felix Adler. Adler believed that for Jews to survive in the modern world, they needed to renounce their narrow spirit of exclusion as the chosen people and instead distinguish themselves through a concern for the laboring classes and the betterment of mankind. The school's curriculum at the Ethical Culture Society was specifically designed to train reformers. Students, including young Oppenheimer, were taught that they were the vanguard of a modern, ethical gospel. Adler specifically exhorted his students that they must develop their ethical imagination to see things not as they are, but as they might be. Robert was an excellent student. He excelled in every area of study, but especially in languages, literature, and science. At 16, Julius gave his son his own 28-foot sloop, which Robert called the Trimothy. Generally shy and introverted, Robert surprised his parents with his nearly suicidal proclivity to sail into the most dangerous of circumstances. During the summers, he could often be found on the deck of the Trimothy fearlessly sailing into the Atlantic storms off of Long Island's Great South Bay. This urge to flirt with danger would stick with him throughout his entire life. Robert graduated valedictorian in 1921. That summer, the Oppenheimers vacationed in Germany. Robert took the opportunity to go on an extended excursion to the Joachimstahl Mines, northeast of Berlin. Camping in rugged conditions for weeks on end, he contracted trench dysentery. His case was so bad that he had to be shipped back to New York on a stretcher and was bedridden so long that he missed autumn enrollment at Harvard. It was not until the following spring that he was well enough to travel again. Now fully recovered from his near-fatal episode, his father arranged for a trip to the American Southwest with one of Robert's teachers from the ethical school. Herbert Smith had been Robert's homeroom teacher. With a master's degree in English from Harvard, Smith would be one of Robert's lifelong mentors. In 1922, Smith took Robert with him on an extended tour of New Mexico. There, Robert learned horseback riding and fell in love with the stark desert mesas of the Southwest. By the end of his stay, Robert was frequently taking trips lasting five to six days at a time. On one of these long rides, he happened upon a Spartan-like boarding school for the sons of the super elite. It was called the Los Alamos Boarding School and would be a place Robert visited again. 
many years later. Robert entered Harvard University in September of 1922. While in New Mexico, Robert had started to emerge from his shell. Now, alone in Cambridge, he regressed into the socially awkward patterns that had epitomized his childhood. He compensated by diving into his studies. His chosen major was chemistry, which he quickly felt was a mistake. He found that the aspects that he did like about chemistry were those that related to physics, but he was already committed to finishing his coursework in chemistry. In the spring, he petitioned the physics department to award him graduate status so he could take higher-level physics courses. The request was granted, and his physics advisor became the Nobel Prize-winning scientist Percy Bridgman. After only three years at Harvard, Robert graduated summa cum laude and was one of only 30 graduates admitted to Phi Beta Kappa. Harvard offered him a graduate fellowship to continue his work in chemistry. Robert now knew that it was physics that called to him, and the center of the world for physics at that time was Cambridge University in England. He hoped to study under Lord Ernest Rutherford, the physicist who developed the model of the nuclear atom in 1911. Rutherford did not take him as a student. He did, however, pass Robert's letter on to his predecessor, J.J. Thompson, director of the Cavendish Laboratory, who agreed to supervise Robert's studies. At Cambridge, the worst aspects of Robert's personality resurfaced with vigor. The lab work required a meticulous dexterity which he found miserable. Early in the semester, he wrote to his friend Francis Ferguson, saying, I'm having a pretty bad time. The lab work is a terrible bore, and I'm so bad at it that it is impossible to feel I am learning anything. The lectures are vile. He was deteriorating rapidly. On more than one occasion, friends found him rocking back and forth on the floor of his apartment. Julius and Ella sensed that all was not well with their son. They crossed the Atlantic to check in on him, and what they found distressed them greatly. Anticipating the state of his mental breakdown, his mother had brought along an old friend from the Ethical Society. Inez Polak and Robert had kept in contact since their high school days. Ella hoped that her son and the young girl might hit it off. They went through the motions of courting and even had an informal engagement, but the relationship was a scam and petered out after a few short weeks. Robert's mental health then entered a sharp, downward spiral. His neuroticism culminated in an episode that nearly got him expelled. Sometime in autumn of 1925, overcome by jealousy and his internal inadequacies, Robert left an apple laced with chemicals from the laboratory on the desk of his professor, Patrick Blackett. It's unlikely that the chemical was strong enough to do anything more than make Blackett sick. Fortunately, he did not eat the apple, so he never had the opportunity to find out. When Robert's parents were informed of the incident, Julius frantically lobbied the university not to press criminal charges. He convinced the administration not to expel his son either. The agreement was that Robert could continue his studies on probation and with the condition that he would have regular sessions with a psychiatrist. Over the next few months, Robert went to three different psychiatrists and became well-read in the subject. In the summer, he joined a number of his friends on a trip to Corsica, 
During this short vacation, he experienced an epiphany of sorts and returned to Cambridge in the fall with a new outlook and brightened spirits. He began to feel that his problem over the last year may have stemmed from the disconnect between his brilliant intellect and his inability to function competently in the lab. As a result, he now turned his focus to theoretical physics and left the experimental side to others. It was a groundbreaking time in the world of theoretical physics. The field of quantum mechanics was just beginning, and luminaries like Werner Heisenberg, Erwin Schrödinger, Niels Bohr, Max Born, and others were at the height of their discoveries. Heisenberg and Schrödinger had both recently published revolutionary papers describing the motions of electrons. After reading both papers, Robert concluded that Heisenberg's matrix mechanics and Schrödinger's wave mechanics were two versions describing the same phenomena. On a Cambridge-sponsored trip to the University of Leiden, Robert met Max Born, who was the director of the Institute of Theoretical Physics at Jotunheim. Born was so impressed that he extended Robert an invitation to study with him in Jotunheim. Robert accepted, and by the fall of 1926, was in the greatest center of innovation for theoretical physics in the world. If in Cambridge, Robert shrank under the pressure of his inner demons, and in Jotungen, he blossomed. He became excited about his work, confident in his abilities, and focused on tackling the problems before him. Born admired him greatly, and Robert likewise. He also became close friends with Paul Dirac. They had met the year before at Cambridge and had struck up a friendship. In 1927, Dirac transferred to Jotungen, and their friendship deepened as they both labored over various problems in quantum theory. The work was hard, but deeply gratifying for Robert. Another of his classmates was Friedrich George Houdermans. While Oppenheimer and Houdermans were colleagues at university, years later, they would both work on the development of an atomic weapon, Robert for the United States and Houdermans in Nazi Germany. Houdermans was only one of many colleagues who would eventually work on atomic research. Werner Heisenberg would also remain loyal to wartime Germany, and Oppenheimer would later wonder whether he was racing against Heisenberg to develop the atomic bomb. But in 1927, these young scientists were all colleagues in the new field of quantum physics. By the end of the semester, Robert had co-authored a paper with Born titled On Quantum Theory of Molecules, which contains a significant breakthrough for calculating the quantum state of molecules. This paper laid the foundations for work in high-energy physics nearly 70 years later. In the spring, Robert submitted his doctoral thesis in which he developed a method for calculating the photoelectric effect in hydrogen and x-rays. His thesis was accepted with distinction, and he was awarded a doctorate in physics. He was 23 years old and had only spent two years on his graduate work. In the spring of 1928, Robert accepted a postdoc fellowship from the National Research Council. He decided to spend the fall term at his alma mater, Harvard, before moving on to Caltech in Pasadena, California, where he had also accepted a teaching position. Robert felt stifled in Massachusetts 
and feared to fall into the same bad mental habits that had plagued him there as an undergraduate. Pasadena, however, suited him just fine, and he relished its proximity to his great love, New Mexico. Over the summer vacation, he and his brother Frank took an excursion there. While riding through the mountains above Los Pinos, an old friend and New Mexican native, Catherine Page, showed the Oppenheimer brothers a small, rustic cabin with 158 acres. The ranch was nestled in a meadow, 9,500 feet above sea level. It was made of tree trunks and adobe mortar, had no running water, and its only bathroom was a small outhouse. Robert was so excited by the idea of owning the place that he exclaimed, Hot dog! Catherine replied, No, pero caliente! Robert and Frank convinced their father to lease the ranch, which they named Pero Caliente. It would become Robert's private haven for many years, and he would eventually purchase the property for $10,000 in 1947. His first year of teaching at Caltech went well. By the second semester, he had already received 10 job offers from top universities around the world. He decided to stay at Caltech, but accepted a second position at UC Berkeley. The physics department there had no theoretical component to its coursework, and Robert thought it would be interesting to try and start something. But first, he felt that he needed more experience, particularly in math, so he petitioned for a fellowship abroad so he could complete another year of postdoc studies. Initially, he studied with Paul Ernfist in Leiden, but soon found that they were not compatible. Ernfist normally sent students to study with Niels Bohr in Copenhagen. For Robert, he suggested an accomplished physicist and mathematician in Zurich, Switzerland, named Wolfgang Pauli. Pauli was only four years Robert's senior, and they quickly developed a mutual fondness for each other. His time spent in Zurich was fruitful, and Pauli pushed him to be more careful about his calculations and more clear in his ideas. While in Zurich, Robert became acquainted with one of Pauli's other students, Isidore I. Rabbi. I.I. Rabbi and Oppenheimer's friendship transcended physics. They would remain close friends for the rest of their lives. Robert's work in Zurich on continuum wave functions and field emissions established him as one of the world's preeminent theoretical physicists. From the beginning of his doctoral work in 1926 to the end of his time in Zurich in 1929, Robert published 16 major papers in his field. When he returned to America, he had secured himself an international reputation. At the close of the spring term, Robert met his brother Frank in New Mexico for three weeks. Despite the enactment of the Prohibition, Robert always managed to have plenty of whiskey on hand. They would talk and ride all day, and at night they would drink, and under the dim light of a lantern, Robert would prepare his lectures. In August of 1929, Robert went to Berkeley for his first semester. He was hired to teach graduate courses in theoretical physics, something that was new to Berkeley. At first, the going was tough. It was a difficult subject, and Robert was a difficult professor. His lecturing needed improvement, and much to the dismay of his students, he tended to scribble over the top of his own blackboard notes. Right from the beginning, Robert tried to explain esoteric topics, like Heisenberg's uncertainty principle the Schrodinger equation, field theory, and Dirac's synthesis and Pauli's work on quantum electrodynamics. His students were baffled. Many had to take his course twice, some even thrice. For those who stuck it out, 
their erudite professor rewarded their hard work. Oppenheimer began to develop a uniquely open teaching style. Rather than holding separate office hours for each student, eight to ten graduates and a half a dozen postdocs were instead required to all meet in Oppenheimer's office at the appointed time to discuss their work. The topics varied widely and were discussed openly while Oppenheimer paced the floor chain-smoking. In Leiden, Robert's nickname had been Opje. His students soon took to calling him Oppie, which he encouraged. Martin Kamen was one of Oppie's acolytes. Everyone sort of regarded him affectionately as being sort of nuts, Kamen said. He was very brilliant, but somehow superficial. He had the approach of a dilettante. He had this overwhelming temptation just to snow you. Soon a cult of personality developed around the eccentric physicist. Students and admirers, knowingly or not, began to copy his eccentricities. Over the next few years, word got around that if you wanted to enter the field of theoretical physics, Berkeley was the place to go. Despite the turbulence of the early 1930s, Oppenheimer had thus far avoided involving himself in political affairs. Prior to the stock market crash in 1929, Robert's father had liquidated his interest in the textile business and converted it into a sizable fortune. For most, the post-crash years were a time of belt tightening. Robert, living as flush as ever, barely noticed. He did, however, share of his abundance freely. His work and his relationships were more interesting to him than money. It was not that he was ignorant of world events or politics. He was widely read and curious about nearly everything. To say that he was indifferent would be more accurate. I know three people who were interested in politics, he once told a friend. Tell me, what does politics have to do with truth, goodness, and beauty? The dark cloud forming over Europe did for Robert what economic collapse did not. His political sensibilities began to awake with the rise of fascism in Italy and Hitler in Nazi Germany. Within a year of Hitler's chancellorship, Robert began sending sizable sums of money to Jewish scientists trying to escape Germany. These were men he knew personally, many of whom he had studied with during his PhD. Apart from these acts of charity, Oppenheimer had yet to embrace any further political involvement but he would not be able to sit on the sidelines much longer. Two events would entice him into full participation in the political. The first was Jean Tatlock. Only 22 when she met Oppenheimer, Tatlock was studying at the Stanford School of Medicine in San Francisco. She was a dues-paying member of the Communist Party of America and a part-time journalist for the Western Worker, the CP's Pacific Coast publication. They began dating in autumn of 1936. Soon, Jean's friends became Robert's friends, and he was inexorably pulled into their world of political activism. However, Tatlock was not the only factor in the awakening of Oppenheimer's social conscience. In 1935, his father gifted him a copy of Soviet Communism, A New Civilization. Written by prominent British socialists Sidney and Beatrix Webb, the book painted a utopian picture of the new Soviet experiment. The next summer, Oppenheimer also read all three volumes of Karl Marx's magnum opus, Das Kapital. He was impressed by these books 
and became open to the ideas they presented. The final push to action for Oppenheimer was the refusal of the United States and its Western allies to aid the Republicans in the Spanish Civil War. The situation in Spain had been deteriorating rapidly since King Alfonso XIII had authorized elections in 1931. Spaniards overwhelmingly voted to abolish the monarchy in favor of a liberal republic. During the first two years of the Second Spanish Republic, the leftist-controlled parliament forced through radical reforms. Opposed to this liberal wave was a conservative coalition of the aristocracy, the church, and certain elements of the military. In the November elections of 1933, this coalition regained control of the government. A socialist revolution was ignited in response. Spanish General Francisco Franco was dispatched to Austrias and Barcelona to put down the rebellion. The political tables turned again in February of 1936 when the far-left coalition Popular Front retook control and ousted conservatives from the government. Military leadership in the conservative coalition feared that the Popular Front's liberal reforms would collapse into an all-out Marxist revolution. A nationalist coup d'etat was planned, and on July 18th, garrisons rose up all across the Spanish mainland as well as Morocco. The Republican government was divided politically, and militarily it was ineffective. Citizen militias took to the streets to combat the nationalists. Soon, what the nationalists had hoped would be a swift revolution looked to become a protracted conflict. Within days, Hitler and Mussolini were committing aid in the form of tanks, artillery, munitions, aircraft, and other necessary supplies to the nationalists. The Republican government received aid from the USSR and Mexico. The United States, England, and the other members of the League of Nations hesitated to aid the Republicans, fearing the communist influence and the potential escalation into a Second World War. Instead, they attempted to enforce an ultimately ineffective embargo on the Spanish peninsula. American liberals were outraged by their government's stance. Many found ways to combat the fascists on their own. Between 1926 and 1929, 2,800 Americans volunteered for the communist-sponsored Abraham Lincoln Brigade. Oppenheimer and Tatlock began to organize fundraisers to support the Spanish cause. Oppenheimer's contributions amounted to nearly $1,000 annually. Funds went to everything from food and supplies to providing military equipment and arms. His donations were always made in cash because he was concerned about the legality of providing weapons to a foreign military. Oppenheimer's new political consciousness brought him in contact with many on the far left. At one early meeting of the Berkeley Teachers Union, Oppenheimer met Hacken Chevalier. Hoke, as he was called by his close friends, was a professor of French literature at Berkeley and a devoted proponent of Marxist ideology. Between 1937 and 1942, Oppie and Hoke became close friends and colleagues. They met both socially and at regularly scheduled meetings to discuss political issues. At these meetings, Oppenheimer rubbed shoulders with many dues-paying members of the Communist Party. His political sympathies, while firmly on the left, were not altogether aligned with the Marxist. 
He refused to toe the party line and was unabashed when he disagreed. In the politically charged atmosphere of the 1930s and 40s, these regular meetings of avowed CP members did not go unnoticed by the FBI. Agents from the San Francisco Bureau had begun collecting information on the activities of these groups through the use of illegal wiretapping. Sometime in the spring of 1941, the FBI had learned of a meeting of the so-called Big Boys in the California Communist Party. The location of the meeting was at the Chevalier's Berkeley home. A field agent was sent to collect the license plate numbers of the attendees. One of the cars belonged to Oppenheimer. Thus far, Oppenheimer had eluded the attention of the FBI. After this meeting, they opened a file on him and began collecting whatever information they could. Eventually, this file would grow to over 7,000 pages. Despite later political machinations, the FBI could never quite identify the nature of Oppie's political ties to the CP. He insisted that while being a sympathizer, he was never, in fact, a dues-paying member. There were conflicting accounts from many of his political acquaintances during this period. Some claimed that he had paid formal dues, others that the cash donations represented his dues as was common for wealthy and high-profile members at the time. Still others claimed that despite his obvious communist sympathies, Oppenheimer was not a member. In the end, the FBI never resolved the question, and by 1938, Robert had already begun distancing himself from the communists. Robert's relationship with his longtime girlfriend, Jean Tatlock, had been rocky from the start. He had proposed marriage on multiple occasions and was met with rejection each time. By 1939, the relationship was over and Robert was on the rebound. In August, he was invited to a garden party in Pasadena. There, he became acquainted with 29-year-old Kitty Harrison, a newly married woman from Pennsylvania. Kitty and Robert were infatuated and soon started seeing each other frequently. Even though it was scandalous, she and Robert did not attempt to hide their affair. Kitty's marriage to Richard was a fraud. They only maintained the pretense because of his belief that a divorce might ruin a rising young doctor. In the spring of 1940, Kitty joined Robert at Perro Caliente for an extended vacation. By summer, Kitty was pregnant. Robert phoned Harrison to confront the matter. The two men concluded that Kitty and Richard should get divorced so that Robert could marry her. Their conversation was even-tempered and civilized. According to Harrison, they had modern views on sex and remained on good terms despite the affair. In September, Kitty moved to Reno for six weeks to obtain a divorce. On November 1st, 1940, she and Robert were married in Virginia City, Nevada at the county courthouse. After their son Peter was born in May of 1941, the Oppenheimers moved into a spacious one-story Spanish villa in the hills overlooking Berkeley with a view of the Golden Gate Bridge. Luis Alvarez was reading the San Francisco Chronicle while getting his haircut one morning in January of 1939. Alvarez was a physicist at the radiation lab at Caltech. In the barber's chair, he came across an article reporting that two German chemists had successfully split the nucleus of a uranium atom the previous fall. 
In their lab, Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann had bombarded uranium with neutrons. The resulting split and release of energy they called nuclear fission. Alvarez ran out of the barbershop mid-haircut and rushed across town back to Caltech. He went straight to Oppenheimer and gave him the news. Oppenheimer immediately started making calculations. After a few minutes, he looked at Alvarez and said that the experiment was wrong, fission was not possible. The next day, Alvarez performed the Hans Strassmann experiment and verified their results. He showed Oppenheimer and within 15 minutes, Robert had authenticated the experiment. He even speculated that the energy released could be used to split more uranium, thereby causing a nuclear chain reaction. He knew immediately that this process could be used to generate enormous amounts of power or be released in the form of a detonated explosion. Five years before the Hans Strassmann experiment, a Hungarian physicist by the name of Leo Zillard had conceived of the possibility of the nuclear chain reaction. He was a graduate of the Institute of Technology in Berlin, close friends with Albert Einstein and Max Planck, and one of many Jewish scientists that had fled growing persecution in Nazi Germany. Zillard had long been considering the practical uses of atomic energy. In 1932, he had read H.G. Wells's novel, The World Set Free, which depicts a tyrannical German Kaiser using small nuclear grenades dropped from airplanes which leveled entire cities. Despite the objections of his colleagues, Zillard was convinced that the creation of a nuclear weapon was possible. Soon after his escape from Germany, he was walking the streets of London when the nuclear chain reaction occurred to him. He began to work out the mechanics of the idea, though he had yet to find the correct formulation of isotopes to induce a chain reaction. At one time, he attempted bombarding beryllium with x-rays, but was unsuccessful. Nevertheless, Szilard knew that with the right elements, the process would work. Realizing the implications were a despotic regime like Nazi Germany to get a hold of this power, Szilard assigned his patent to the British Admiralty in 1936 for safekeeping. Convinced that another world war was imminent, Szilard moved again, this time to the United States. After about a year, he finally settled down in New York, where he continued his research at Columbia University. When Szilard learned of the Hans Strassmann experiment, he realized that uranium was the key to inducing the nuclear chain reaction. He obtained $2,000 from a friend to run a small experiment and permission to use a laboratory at Columbia. Zillard and his collaborator, William Zinn, ran a test similar to the one conducted in Germany. When they bombarded uranium with neutrons, they expected to see an electrical signal corresponding to a release of energy which could be monitored with a device called an oscilloscope. Initially, nothing registered on their equipment. But after realizing that it was not properly plugged in, the device began to flash. He later described the event saying, We turned the switch and saw the flashes. We watched them for a little while, and then we switched everything off and went home. That night, there was very little doubt in my mind that the world was headed for grief. 
Szilard convinced the Italian physicist Enrico Fermi to partner with him on a much larger experiment. The results were underwhelming, and they soon realized that they would need material in quantities that would cost millions of dollars. If they were to finally determine whether a nuclear chain reaction was possible, they needed to get funding for their experiment. Zillard drafted a letter which he intended to deliver to President Roosevelt. In the letter, he explained the potential of his research and warned the president of the dangers of nuclear weapons. This phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs, and it's conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of a new type may thus be constructed. A single bomb of this type, carried by boat and exploded in a port, might very well destroy the whole port together with some of the surrounding territory. He urged the president to support a government-funded nuclear research program. The scheme Zillard had in mind was much more informal and decentralized than the military-led program eventually supported by the U.S. government. Specific attention was drawn to the need for securing a reliable supply of high-quality uranium ores. Attempting to impress the urgency of the situation, he closed the letter stating that, I understand that Germany has actually stopped the sale of uranium from the Czechoslovakian mines which she has taken over. That she should have taken such early action might perhaps be understood on the ground that the son of the German Undersecretary of State, von Weizsäcker, is attached to the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin, where some of the American work on uranium is now being repeated. Hoping to add some weight to his claim, Zillard convinced Albert Einstein to back his recommendation by signing the letter to the president. On September 1st, the Nazis invaded Poland. In October of 1939, the economist and friend of the president, Alexander Sachs, hand-delivered Zillard's letter to FDR. Roosevelt immediately authorized the creation of the Advisory Committee on Uranium. The committee, headed by Sachs, was tasked with examining the current state of atomic research and recommending a course of action. Early on, they backed Zillard and Fermi's research, and $6,000 was appropriated to continue the experiments at Columbia. The committee needed to tackle two problems. First, they needed to determine whether uranium-235 or uranium-238 would produce a chain reaction and whether a reaction could be induced by fast or by slow neutron bombardment. The experiments at Columbia were focused on slow bombardment of the U-235 isotope. By spring, Fermi and his team in America, as well as a separate but unrelated British team, had foreclosed three of the possibilities for inducing a nuclear chain reaction. The only option remaining was through fast neutron fission of U-235. The committee now had to solve the problem of creating enough uranium of fissionable quality. At the time, the isotope separation process was difficult, costly, and slow. There were multiple methods for separation and none was adequate for producing the quantities of uranium needed if the atomic bombs were to be manufactured at scale. Otto Fish, now living in England, calculated that only one pound of highly enriched uranium would suffice for the chain reaction. 
The trouble was how to create even that much weapons-grade uranium, let alone enough for hundreds of bombs. Physicists were generally skeptical about the possibility. Enrico Fermi later remarked that it was not very clear in 1939 that the job of separating large amounts of uranium-235 was one that could be taken seriously. One of the most skeptical about the project, Niels Bohr, remarked that it can never be done unless you turn the United States into one huge factory. He was very nearly right. Progress under the Uranium Committee was haltingly slow. No further experiments had been funded, either for fast neutron fission of U-235 or for isotope separation. To break the gridlock, a new, more powerful federal agency was proposed. In June, the committee was absorbed into the National Defense Research Council. The NDRC was the brainchild of Vannevar Bush. With a joint doctorate in engineering from MIT and Harvard and a keen understanding of Washington politics, Bush was a force to be reckoned with. The very next month, $40,000 was earmarked for determining the precise amount of U-235 that would be needed to initiate a nuclear chain reaction. But not much came out of this research. Instead, a new man-made element was discovered that would have important implications for the atomic program. Ernest Lawrence was the director of the Rad Lab at Berkeley. In the early 30s, Lawrence patented the cyclotron, the first ever particle accelerator. His rad lab soon became one of the preeminent experimental physics labs in the country. Lawrence was skeptical of the possibility that the U-235 isotope could be separated in significant quantities. He had discussed with Bush the idea of pursuing research into other isotopes for inducing a nuclear chain reaction. When Glenn Seaborg, one of the employees at the Rad Lab, started investigating the fissionability of other trans-Neptunian elements, Lawrence was happy to encourage him. Seaborg and his team had noticed alpha decay in the newly discovered Neptunium-239 isotope. Alpha decay occurs in heavy, unstable elements like uranium and neptunium. These unstable elements will in order to get to a more stable state, emit an alpha particle, which is a minorly radioactive particle made of two protons and two neutrons. When the original isotope undergoes radioactive decay and releases the alpha particle, it becomes a new stable element with a mass number that is reduced by four and an atomic number that is reduced by two. Neptunium is number 93 on the periodic table, at that time, element 94 had only been hypothesized, but was still yet undiscovered. When Seaborg observed the alpha decay of Neptunium-239, it indicated the existence of the hypothesized element 94. To test this theory, Seaborg used the cyclotron to transmute a uranium compound called urinal nitrate hexahydrate, also known as UNH, into Neptunium-239, Seaborg refined a little over two and a half pounds of UNH down to a highly radioactive one millionth of a gram of Neptunium-239. He then sealed it, 
and waited for it to decay into the element 94239. Further tests revealed that the new element number 94 would undergo fission with slow neutrons, which made it a likely candidate to replace uranium in the race to build an atomic bomb. Element 94 would not be officially named until 1942. Even so, Seaborg knew what he would call it. Uranium was named in 1789 in honor of the newly discovered planet Uranus. Neptunium was named the same way. In 1930, a ninth planet had been discovered. Though its planetary status has since been revoked, the discovery of Pluto was an astronomical milestone. The new element would take its name from the same Greek god. He was both the ruler of the underworld in Greek mythology and the god of the dead, Plutonium. While the Americans were still deliberating about the physics of a uranium-induced nuclear chain reaction, the British were already beginning to develop a budget for the infrastructure needed to create atomic weapons. A report was produced at Oxford in December of 1940 for the British nuclear program, codenamed the MOD Committee. This report provided detailed data for the construction of a separation plant sufficient in size to produce deployable quantities of U-235. It wasn't until July 1941 that the MOD report would be approved and shared with the United States. Vannevar Bush was among the first to see the British report. As the director of the new Office of Scientific Research and Development, OSRD, Bush now had authority to pursue and initiate the engineering and development of military research projects. The MOD report set out the practical details of a nuclear program in a way that scientists in the U.S. had neglected. It read, A plant to produce two and a quarter pound per day of U-235, or three bombs per day, is estimated to cost approximately five million pounds. In spite of this very large expenditure, we consider that the destructive effect, both material and moral, is so great that every effort should be made to produce bombs of this kind. The material for the first could be ready by the end of 1943. At the end of the report, the committee concluded that the scheme for a uranium bomb is practicable and likely to lead to decisive results in the war. The report offered two specific recommendations. First, it advised that the development of nuclear weapons continue on the highest priority and on the increasing scale necessary to obtain the weapon in the shortest possible time. Finally, the report called for the continuation and extension of nuclear research in collaboration with the United States. The American government now had a concrete proposal for nuclear weapons development in hand, yet still administrators hesitated. A final summary, synthesizing the MOD report and current American research was drafted by the National Academy of Sciences. It was delivered to FDR on November 27, 1941. On December 7th, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. The next day, the United States declared war on the Empire of Japan. On the 11th, Germany issued a declaration of war to the United States. It was now a war on two fronts. In response, the pressure to develop new, powerful, war-winning technologies was immediately ratcheted up. 
and nuclear weapons were at the top of the list. No formal authorization was ever given by the Roosevelt administration to expedite the atomic program. The only evidence of authorization is a note written to Vannevar Bush scribbled on a scrap of White House stationery dated January 19, 1942. It reads, VB, okay, returned. I think you had best keep this in your own safe, FDR. In the 1930s, Robert Oppenheimer had been at the center of the world of physics. Everything changed after the demonstration of nuclear fission in the uranium isotope. Discussions of cutting-edge physics were happening all around him, but without his involvement. Within a few years, Oppenheimer started to feel as if he was being kept out of the conversation. His suspicions were correct. His left-wing politics, specifically his association with members of the Communist Party, and his instigation of union activities were considered a black mark on his record in Washington. Military officials were particularly suspicious of his loyalties. In the early 40s, Lawrence began advocating for Robert to get clearance to join the nuclear project. He desperately tried to convince his friend to cease his political activities, but Oppenheimer had yet to discover that the project was being hidden from him and saw no reason to back down his rhetoric. As late as autumn of 1941, Oppenheimer was organizing meetings at his home to unionize the scientists at Lawrence's Rad Lab. Shortly after the British revealed the Maud Report, a secret meeting at General Electric's laboratory in Schenectady, New York, was scheduled to draft the final proposal for the American nuclear program that would eventually be delivered to FDR. Lawrence insisted that Oppenheimer be included in the meeting. At this point, the program was still under civilian control. Lawrence wrote to Carl Compton, the new chairman of the NDRC, and vouched for Oppenheimer. Robert was allowed to participate in the secret meeting, and it had a profound impact on his future. He had been looking for a way to aid in the war effort for some time. Many of his colleagues had been recruited to develop the military's new radar project. After the New York meeting, he knew how he could help. His contributions to the report that the meeting produced practically assured his involvement in the future. It was Oppenheimer's calculations that determined the approximate minimum amount of U-235 that would be needed to initiate the nuclear chain reaction. This calculation was an essential part of the final report delivered to FDR. One month after the secret meeting, Oppenheimer wrote to Lawrence, there will be no further difficulties at any time with the Union. I have not spoken to everyone involved, but all those to whom I have spoken agree with us, so you can forget it. For now, the war effort came first. Following the attack on Pearl Harbor, government resources streamed into the atomic project, and Oppenheimer quickly became indispensable. In May of 1942, he was appointed to direct fast neutron research for S-1, the super-secret nuclear research division of the NDRC. He was given the title of Coordinator of Rapid Rupture. Robert flew into action, organizing a meeting of the top theoretical physicists in the nation. They were to meet that summer in the top floor of LeConte Hall at UC Berkeley. The deliberations convinced Oppenheimer that a successful bomb project would require industrial investment on a massive scale. Aware of the challenges ahead, 
he was determined to continue aiding the war effort. Civilian leadership in the NDRC took notice of Robert's brilliant contributions to the project. Vannevar Bush and James Conant wanted to appoint Robert to direct a top-secret weapon lab that was being planned. The lab would be entirely dedicated to the construction of a nuclear bomb. The Army, however, refused to grant Oppenheimer security clearance. His past connections to communism was their main concern. Robert knew this to be the case. In a conversation with Compton, Robert made his position clear. I am cutting off every communist connection, for if I don't, the government will find it difficult to use me. I don't want to let anything interfere with my usefulness to the nation. Despite this, the army was not yet ready to accept Oppenheimer's wartime patriotism. Bush brought the issue to the attention of General Brehan Somerville, senior officer in charge of army logistics. Somerville heard him out, but explained that he already had a man in mind for the job. In September, he met with Colonel Leslie Groves. Groves was career military and an engineer. He had spent the last 16 months expediting the construction of the Pentagon for the War Department and now wanted a combat assignment overseas. Somerville had other plans. Groves made it clear that he was not interested in the S-1 project, but Somerville wasn't asking. Groves would be promoted to general and tasked with organizing the nuclear research projects scattered across the U.S. into a cohesive weapons development project. He officially took charge of the Manhattan Engineering District, known as the Manhattan Project, on September 18, 1942. The next day, Groves ordered the acquisition of a site in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Soon he was touring laboratories, working on uranium isotope separation all over the country. In early October, he made his way to Berkeley, where Oppenheimer was waiting to meet him. Robert understood that if there was any hope for him being involved in the Manhattan Project, that it was imperative that he impress General Groves. The two men connected on the vision of the bomb project. Oppenheimer suggested that the entire project should be gathered in one central location. He also expressed his concerns about security. In order to ensure maximum control over the secrecy of the project, Oppenheimer suggested centralizing into a single remote location away from any large cities. General Groves was impressed, not only with Oppenheimer's common sense ideas, but also with his mastery of the scientific principles related to the bomb. Groves was soon convinced that the Manhattan Project needed Robert Oppenheimer's expertise. He suggested to the military police committee that Oppenheimer be appointed as director of the project's primary laboratory. Again, military brass opposed Robert's involvement. Groves would not back down so easily. Later, he wrote, After much discussion, I asked each member to give me the name of a man who would be a better choice. In a few weeks, it became clear that we were not going to find a better man. Administrators in the Manhattan Project were soon investigating dozens of sites throughout the Southwest. They were looking for a secluded but accessible location to construct the nuclear weapons development facility. In November of 1942, Oppenheimer met with other members of the project at a site called Yemez Springs in New Mexico. As soon as Oppenheimer saw the location, 
he knew it was inadequate to the task. Robert knew that extensive facilities and infrastructure would be required to successfully complete their mission. The narrow canyon gorge at Yemez Springs would be far too confined for the town he envisioned. As Robert was trying to persuade the others to find a different location, General Groves arrived on the scene, took one look around, and said, This will never do. Oppenheimer then proposed another site. They got back in their cars and followed Oppie 30 miles north through the canyon and across the Pajarito Lava Mesa. The Los Alamos Ranch School owned 800 acres at the top of the mesa. At an elevation of 7,200 feet, the school was surrounded by the snow-capped Yemez Mountains in the west and the Sangre de Cristo Mountains east across the Rio Grande Valley. Groves knew immediately that this was the place. Within two days, the army had the paperwork in order to acquire the property. The site's combination of open space and seclusion made it ideal for the construction of a top-secret installation. However, the isolation made the logistics of construction a nightmare. Los Alamos could only be accessed via a small, winding gravel road, and communication was through a single telephone line. The army quickly assembled cheap green barracks to serve as the initial housing and workstations. Oppenheimer was concerned that the rugged conditions would make recruiting very difficult. He felt that it would be hard to convince the scientists he needed for the project to leave the amenities of the large cities and university towns like Berkeley, Chicago, New York, and Boston. To solve this problem, he drew up plans for a small town to be built at Los Alamos with all the luxuries of a modern American city. There were apartments, single-family homes, and whole neighborhoods built in the New Mexican frontier, equipped with electricity, running water, stoves, refrigerators, and other appliances. There would be a school for children, a library, laundry, and a hospital. The army would run a postal service and a grocery store. Items could even be ordered and shipped in from outside Los Alamos. Recreation officers would plan movie nights, hiking trips, and other activities. And, in addition to the regular mess hall, Oppie even planned for the construction of a cantina as well as an upscale restaurant. The initial construction contract for Los Alamos was budgeted at $300,000. The technical area, or T area as it was called, eventually comprised over 37 buildings, including a plutonium purification plant, a foundry, a library, a machine shop, auditoriums, offices, and warehouses. During the construction, Oppie often traveled the country recruiting for the project. When Los Alamos opened in March of 1943, 100 scientists, engineers, and support staff lived on the Mesa. One year later, that number had grown to 3,500, and by 1945, there were over 6,000 people living up on the Mesa. Initially, General Groves suggested that the scientists become commissioned army officers. Oppenheimer was eager to support the war effort and joined thousands all over the country who were patriotically wearing military uniforms. He agreed to General Groves' suggestion and was soon fitted and assigned the rank of colonel. While Oppenheimer may have been enthusiastic to don a uniform, the proposal was met with severe opposition from the civilian scientists he was trying to recruit. They were particularly concerned 
about the imposition of military discipline over the scientific work of the project. The complexity of the scientific issues necessitated the interdisciplinary exchange of information across all segments of the project. The imposition of military rules would have quashed this free exchange. The scientists knew that if the project had any hope of success, this limitation could not stand. Oppenheimer was convinced by their argument. He made a compromise with Groves. Until the development phase was over, the scientists would be free to exchange information, but the army would control access to Los Alamos. From the beginning, Groves and Oppenheimer were allies of necessity. Groves knew that Oppenheimer's scientific prowess and charismatic authority were integral to the success of the Manhattan Project. Robert knew that there were those in the military that believed his former political associations should bar him from any involvement with the project. Only the support of Groves legitimized him, and Groves knew it. Groves also recognized Oppenheimer's great ambition to leave his mark on history. The two men were constantly locked in a cat-and-mouse contest for control of the relationship. At first, Robert was at a disadvantage. The role of an administrator was a new experience for him. It required quickly overcoming lifelong habits and replacing them with new skills, one of which was learning to pick his battles with Groves. As a professor, Robert had never scheduled a class before 11 a.m. and stayed out late into the night. At Los Alamos, he was on his way to the tea area by 7.30 in the morning. He cut his long, curly hair and kept it closely clipped, made sure his office was clean and tidy, and learned to deftly navigate military bureaucracy. These changes were a combination of Robert's recognition of the responsibilities of his new position and his need to appease Groves. The general continued to try and implement military compartmentalization of information despite their agreement to the contrary. For a time, Robert was forced to avoid direct confrontation over the issue. A few of the scientists quit because of his apparent unwillingness to defy the general outright. Robert, however, knew that the policy could not stand for long. Instead of having a confrontation with Groves, Robert just allowed the situation to collapse naturally. The civilian scientists continued to ignore the injunction to compartmentalize knowledge and instead talked freely with each other about all aspects of their work. Groves eventually realized that the situation was hopeless. He could not fire all the scientists. They were the only hope for completing the bomb project, and he could not stop them from talking to each other either. With no alternative, the general begrudgingly gave up his attempts to control the spread of information between the scientists. Oppenheimer had cleverly gotten his way without lifting a finger. After relentless persuasion by General Groves, Oppenheimer's security clearance was issued on July 20, 1943. Groves's aide delivered the news with a warning. In the future, please avoid seeing your questionable friends. And remember, whenever you leave Los Alamos, we will be tailing you. In June of 1943, Lieutenant Colonel John Lansdale was assigned a security aide to General Groves. Lansdale was a smart, 30-something lawyer from Cleveland 
and was tasked with tightening the security web around Oppenheimer. Robert's assistants at Los Alamos were replaced by undercover agents from the Army Counterintelligence Corps. His mail was monitored, his phone tapped, and his office bugged. Even his personal driver was replaced by a CIC agent. The man behind all of this intrigue was Colonel Boris Posh, chief of U.S. counterintelligence on the West Coast. Posh had objected vociferously to Oppenheimer's involvement in the project. Posh believed that Robert still had strong ties to the Communist Party. If Oppie wasn't himself an informer, Posh believed that, at the very least, Robert was in connection with those who could pass information to the Soviets. Best case scenario, Robert was a vulnerability to the security of the project. Worst case, he was a spy for the Soviets. Pash argued against granting Oppie security clearance and tried to get him removed from the project entirely. But, try as he might, Pash could not get rid of Oppenheimer. Oppie was protected by Groves, who rebuffed Pash's every attempt. Lansdale had by this time met Oppenheimer and had begun to form a different opinion of him. While he was concerned about the security of the project, Lansdale had come to like and even trust Oppenheimer. He believed Robert wanted to keep the project secure, even if he did have some troubling past associations. Lansdale argued to both Pash and Groves that they should use Robert as an informer. Groves agreed with Lansdale, but Pash did not. If he couldn't get rid of Oppenheimer, Pash was determined to send an unambiguous message. The promotion of Rossi Lominitz presented Pash with just such an opportunity. Lominitz was Oppie's protege at Berkeley and, like Oppie, had previously been involved with leftist political groups. In July 1943, the 21-year-old physicist was called into Lawrence's office at the Rad Lab and promoted to group leader. Three days later, he was drafted. He was ordered to appear for a physical exam the next day. Lominitz immediately phoned Oppie, who scrambled to intercede on his behalf and cabled the Pentagon that the draft needed to be recalled. A few days later, Oppie was visited by Lansdale and warned not to attempt any further interventions. Lominitz, Oppie was told, had remained active in his past political associations and was guilty of indiscretions which could not be overlooked or condoned. No further explanation was given. Roberts assumed that Lominitz had continued union organizing for Facet. He also remembered that George L. Tenton, the shell engineer that had approached Hakon Chevalier about enlisting Oppie in passing information to the Soviets, well, he was also an organizer for Facet. At the time, Oppie had dismissed the conversation with Chevalier as idle talk. Now, with Lominitz in trouble, Oppie became concerned that something serious was going on. He decided he had to report the incident with Chevalier just in case. Robert did not know it, but Lominitz's draft had been initiated after the submission of an investigative report from Pash. Oppenheimer was visiting the Rad Lab on project business about a month after Lominitz was drafted. While there, he went to see Lieutenant Lyle Johnson, the Army security officer stationed at the lab. 
Oppie had a brief conversation with Johnson about Lominitz and mentioned his concern about Altenton and his Communist Party affiliation. After Robert left, Johnson phoned Pash, who instructed him to have Oppenheimer return for a longer interview the next day. Overnight, they installed a hidden microphone in Johnson's desk in order to record the conversation. Robert knew Pash by reputation only, but had not yet met him in person. So when Oppie went to Johnson's office for the interview the next day, he was a little taken back to be greeted by the chief spook of U.S. counterintelligence on the West Coast. He had agreed to meet with Johnson, thinking that they would continue their discussion about Lominitz from the day before. Pash, however, had other plans. He pushed Robert to elaborate on the comment about Altenton. Pash asked if Oppenheimer knew of any other groups that were interested in the work going on at the Rad Lab. Robert conceded that he thought that it would be true, but explained that he had no first-hand knowledge of any such groups. He then immediately contradicted himself and went on to say, I think it's true that a man whose name I never heard, who was attached to the Soviet console, as indicated indirectly through intermediary people concerned in this project, that he was in a position to transmit, without danger of leak or scandal or anything of that kind, information which they might supply. Concern for the plight of young Lominitz and the shock of being confronted by a top-level counterintelligence officer had Robert off balance. He was becoming talkative and was quickly painting himself into a corner from which there would be no escape. This was exactly the kind of opening that Pash had been looking for. He pushed Robert to be more specific about the kind of information that could get to the Soviets and who might be interested in sharing it. Here, Robert started to fumble. He remembered the conversation with Chevalier in his own kitchen six months earlier. He wanted to protect the integrity of the Manhattan Project from potential spies like Altenton, which is why he had raised that matter with Johnson in the first place. But at the same time, he wanted to protect his friend Chevalier from being the chief suspect in a counterintelligence investigation. Pash, on the other hand, knew he was getting close. Could you give me a little more specific information as to exactly what information you have? You can readily realize that the transmittal of secret information would be to me as interesting, pretty near, as the whole project is to you. To which Oppenheimer replied, Well, I might say that the approaches were always to other people who were troubled by them, and sometimes they came and discussed them with me. Unprepared for this line of questioning, Oppie began to elaborate on multiple approaches, not just the one in his kitchen. Chevalier had mentioned that Altenton suggested approaching three scientists connected to the bomb project, Lawrence, Alvarez, and Oppie himself. Oppie also knew that it wouldn't have been out of the question for Altenton to find one or more other scientists that would have been willing to transmit information to the Soviets. He knew that many of them, including himself, had been involved with the Communist Party in America. Many of them felt that it was unfair to not inform the Russians of the work they were doing at Los Alamos. The Russians were, after all, bearing the brunt of the war on the Eastern Front and being hailed as heroes in the press. Oppenheimer went so far as to tell Pash, To put it quite frankly, I would feel friendly to the idea of the commander-in-chief informing the Russians that we were working on this problem. At least, 
I can see that there might be some arguments for doing that, but I do not feel friendly to the idea of having it moved out the back door. I think that it might not hurt to be on the lookout for it. For Pash, hearing the chief scientist on the United States' most secret weapons development project expressing sympathy with the idea of revealing technical secrets to the Soviets was alarming to say the least. Oppenheimer finally told Pash, as he had Lieutenant Johnson, that the man they needed to watch was George L. Tenton. When Pash asked the names of the other scientists who were approached, Oppenheimer refused, saying that they had basically told the intermediary to go to hell and were completely innocent. Pash then asked for the name of the intermediary. Politely but firmly, Oppenheimer refused. I think I have told you where the initiative came from and that the other things were almost purely incidental. The intermediary between El Tenten and the project thought it was the wrong idea, but said that this was the situation. I don't think he supported it. In fact, I know it. To counter Pash's inquiries, Oppie then tried to paint the picture that the entire situation was actually quite benign. Let me give you the background, he said. You know how difficult it is with the relations between these two allies, and there are a lot of people who don't feel very friendly to Russia, so that the information, a lot of our secret information, on radar and so on, doesn't get to them, and they're battling for their lives, and they would like to have an idea of what is going on, and this is just to make up, in other words, for the defects of our official communication. That is in the form in which it was presented. Oppenheimer knew that this wouldn't sit well with Pash, so he added, Of course, the actual fact is that since it's not a communication that ought to be taking place, it is treasonable. He clarified, though, that the spirit of the idea was not really treasonable at all, but was intended to make up for the perceived deficiencies in the official communications between the two allied nations. Eventually, Oppenheimer explained how El Tenten planned to transmit information to the Soviets. This man, El Tenten, had very good contacts with a man from the embassy attached to the consulate who was a very reliable guy and who had a lot of experience in microfilm work or whatever the hell. Pash continued to press Oppenheimer to name the intermediary who approached him about El Tenten's plan. Again, Oppie declined. The most he was willing to reveal was that the person was a member of the Berkeley faculty. Towards the end of the interview, Oppenheimer encouraged Pash to keep an eye on Facet, even going so far as saying, it wouldn't hurt to have a man in the local group of this union Facet to see what may happen and what he can pick up. He then assured Pash that as director of the Los Alamos project, he was certain that everything is 100% in order. I think that's the truth. I would be perfectly willing to be shot if I had done anything wrong. The interview was one of many similar interviews that would all get added to Oppie's file. For the time being, military intelligence couldn't do anything about Oppenheimer. As long as the Los Alamos project needed him, he would be protected by General Groves. Besides, not everyone in intelligence distrusted Oppenheimer. Groves's security aide, Lansdale, interviewed Oppenheimer a few days after the interview with Pash. For Groves, he seemed to accept Robert's position. Oppie told the general, that he would reveal the third party if the general ordered it, but Groves didn't press the matter. When the FBI pushed for more details about the El Tenten affair, 
Lansdale replied that both he and General Groves believed Oppenheimer was telling the truth. But for the Bureau, this was not a good enough answer. They were not so willing to trust Oppenheimer. Besides, they needed more information to properly investigate Altenton. Finally, in December of 1943, Groves ordered Oppenheimer to give him the name of the intermediary. Reluctantly, Oppie revealed that it was his friend Chevalier, but insisted that the Berkeley professor was completely innocent. Two months later, the Bureau pressed Groves to have Oppenheimer give the names of the other scientists that had been approached. Apparently, Groves ignored this request because the FBI's files contain no record of a reply. Despite the military's best attempts to keep the work at Los Alamos secret, intelligence reports began making their way to the Soviets in autumn of 1944. Two of the known spies were Klaus Fuchs and Ted Hall. Fuchs was a Polish refugee who had fled to England in 1933. Fuchs was a communist before moving to England. He hated the Nazis and was committed to ending their reign of terror in Europe. By the time the British consolidated their nuclear program with the Americans, he was already passing the Soviets' information. Ted Hall was a 19-year-old Harvard graduate working in Los Alamos. He listened to the older scientists discussing concerns about the world after the Nazis and their fear of a post-war arms race between the Western Allies and the Soviets. They feared that an American monopoly on nuclear weapons would lead to another war. While his colleagues talked, Hall decided to do something. During a 14-day leave from the project, Hall boarded a train and headed to New York. There, he walked straight into the Soviet trade office in New York City and hand-delivered a document containing details about the Los Alamos project. Hall did this on multiple occasions over the following months, eventually passing the Soviets' information on nearly all parts of the bomb project. He asked for nothing in return. He simply believed he was helping save the world from a future nuclear war. By the end of 1944, it was becoming apparent that the war in Europe would end before the bomb was ready. Ethical concerns about the use of such a weapon began to surface once again. Unofficial meetings were held in Los Alamos about, as one flyer put it, the impact of the gadget on civilization. In these meetings, the scientists expressed their concerns about continuing to build the bomb when it looked as if the war was nearly over. Oppenheimer discouraged these meetings, but made a point to attend and engage in the discussions. For his part, Oppie argued that the scientists had no right to a louder voice in determining the use of the weapon than any other citizen. While recognizing that nuclear weapons would cast a dark shadow over the globe, Oppenheimer was hopeful that fear of this weapon would be the catalyst needed to end future conflicts. The fundamental knowledge of atomic physics was understood by scientists all over the world. He knew it would not be long before other nations developed their own nuclear arsenals. If the war ended without the world seeing the terrible power of this new weapon, the next war would most certainly be fought with atomics. It was his hope that a demonstration of the bomb's destructive power would persuade the world to invest in a permanent peace. Many of his fellow scientists found this logic compelling. Robert Wilson, 
head of the Los Alamos Experimental Physics Division, recalled later. My feeling about Oppenheimer was, at that time, this was a man who is angelic, true and honest, and he could do no wrong. I believed in him. For a time, Oppie's argument was enough to allay concerns and keep the project on schedule. When the Allied forces converged on Berlin in May of 1945, questions about the necessity and morality of the bomb surfaced again. Fear of Nazi domination is what had convinced so many to join the Manhattan Project in the first place. With that threat now eliminated, many of the scientists had reservations about finishing the project. The scientists at Los Alamos had understood that Nazis were the enemy of the free world and their fanatical ideology required a decisive response. Now that the war in Europe was over, was it really necessary to unleash the terrible, destructive power of the atomic bomb? They had never considered the Japanese to be the target of a nuclear strike. However, as the Truman administration took the reins, it became more and more apparent that they intended to use the bomb. On May 31st, Robert was in Washington, D.C. for a meeting of the Interim Committee. Secretary of War Henry Stimson had assembled the committee to advise him on nuclear policy. It was understood by all in attendance that the meeting's main objective was to decide the immediate and post-war use of the bomb. Oppenheimer continued to argue that a demonstration was necessary for the post-war peace. By the end of the day, it had been decided that the bomb should be dropped on a large urban area. The president of Harvard University, James Conant, advised that the most desirable target would be a vital war plant employing a large number of workers and closely surrounded by workers' houses. Back in Los Alamos, arguments continued over whether a non-lethal demonstration of the bomb's power should be made prior to its military use on the Japanese. Oppie called one of the lead scientists, Robert Wilson, into his office one day and explained that he was part of the interim committee that was advising Stimson on how the bomb should be used and asked Wilson for his views on the matter. Wilson pointed out that they were planning a test of the bomb in just a few weeks. Why not invite a Japanese delegation to witness the test and see for themselves the bomb's destructive capability? Maybe they would think twice about continuing the war and using the weapon might not be necessary. To this, Oppenheimer replied, Well, supposing it didn't go off. Wilson turned to Oppenheimer and said, Well, we could kill them all. The war in the Pacific had seen some of the most horrific fighting of World War II. By 1945, the Allies had fought tooth and nail for one tiny island chain after another. Midway, New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, Guadalcanal, the Marianas, Iwo Jima, Okinawa. Places that most people could barely pronounce, let alone find on a map. America alone had suffered over 400,000 casualties in the three years since the bombing of Pearl Harbor. With the war in Europe at an end, the Japanese were doomed, but they refused to quit. It was beginning to look like the only way to end the war was to invade the Japanese home islands. 
the operation that was being planned would have made the Normandy landings look like a training exercise. Estimates of the casualties for the invasion were over a million. Given the horrific fighting that had already occurred in the Pacific, it's no wonder that even the most pacifist of the scientists at Los Alamos were thinking like Wilson. Just a few weeks before the bomb test, a petition drafted by Leo Zillard circulated through the Los Alamos lab. The document called for President Truman to refrain from the military use of atomic weapons on Japan without a public issuance of the terms of surrender. Zillard's document stated, The United States shall not resort to the use of atomic bombs in this war unless the terms which will be imposed upon Japan have been made public in detail, and Japan knowing these terms has refused to surrender. When Oppenheimer was made aware of the petition, he was furious. What do they know about Japanese psychology? How can they judge the way to end the war? Oppie felt the decision was best left in the hands of the administration and military leadership. Edward Teller replied to Zillard on July 2nd, only two weeks before the first weapons test. His letter reveals something of what he and Oppenheimer and others on the project were feeling at the time. Dear Zillard, Since our discussion, I have spent some time thinking about your objections to an immediate military use of the weapon we may produce. I decided to do nothing. I should like to tell you my reasons. First of all, let me say that I have no hope of clearing my conscience. The things we are working on are so terrible that no amount of protesting or fiddling with politics will save our souls. This much is true. I have not worked on the project for a very selfish reason, and I have gotten much more trouble than pleasure out of it. I worked because the problems interested me, and I should have felt it a great restraint not to go ahead. I cannot claim that I simply worked to do my duty. A sense of duty could keep me out of such work. It could not get me into the present kind of activity against my inclinations. If you should succeed in convincing me that your moral objections are valid, I should quit working. I hardly think that I should start protesting. But I am not really convinced of your objections. I do not feel that there is any chance to outlaw any one weapon. If we have a slim chance of survival, it lies in the possibility to get rid of wars. The more decisive a weapon is, the more surely it will be used in any real conflict and no agreements will help. Our only hope is in getting the facts of our results before the people. This might help to convince everybody that the next war would be fatal. For this purpose, actual combat use might even be the best thing. And this brings me to the main point. The accident that we worked out this dreadful thing should not give us the responsibility of having a voice in how it is to be used. This responsibility must in the end be shifted to the people as a whole, and that can be done only by making the facts known. This is the only cause for which I feel entitled in doing something. The necessity of lifting the secrecy, at least as far as the broad issues of our work are concerned. My understanding is that this will be done as soon as the military situation permits it. All this may seem to you quite wrong, 
I should be glad if you showed this letter to Eugene and to Frank, who seem to agree with you rather than with me. I should like to have the advice of all of you, whether you think it is a crime to continue the work. But I feel that I should do the wrong thing if I tried to say how to tie the little toe of the ghost to the bottle from which we just helped it to escape. With best regards, yours, E. Teller. When the war in Europe ended, the Allies hosted a conference in a suburb of Berlin called Potsdam. The agenda was nothing short of determining the geopolitical makeup of post-war Europe. Churchill, Truman, and the rest of the Western Allies hoped to check the advance of the Soviets, who were already laying claim to large swaths of Eastern Europe. Having been briefed on the progress of the atomic bomb, Truman pushed to postpone the conference until July 15th to give the scientists more time to conduct a test of the weapon. Truman hoped that being the only country with a completed atomic bomb would give him a strategic advantage in negotiations at the conference. To meet this demand, the test date was scheduled for July 16th, rain or shine. Preparations for the test had been in works since early 1944. Oppie had tasked Kenneth Bainbridge with locating and preparing a site for the test. Of the five or so sites Bainbridge scoped out, one was relatively close to Los Alamos. About 200 miles south of the Mesa, there was a flat, desolate scrub making up the northwestern corner of the Alamogordo bombing range. Gray hard mesquite, yucca roots, sharp as swords, scorpions, tarantulas, rattlesnakes, and all other sorts of dangerous critters populated the landscape. The Spanish called the region Jornada del Muerto, the journey of death. Bainbridge staked out an 18 by 24 mile claim to this journey of death. Oppenheimer named the site Trinity. The site was laid out with solid concrete bunkers 10,000 yards north, south, and west of Point Zero. Over the next year, Bainbridge's staff grew from 25 to 250 as he oversaw the construction of a field lab, military police station, barracks, bunkers, two 100-foot towers, and 25 miles of paved roads, all in preparation for dropping the bomb. Only days before the official test in July, the Los Alamos team conducted a preliminary test of the implosion mechanism with a dummy bomb. The charges did not work, and the test was a complete failure. This did not bode well for the Trinity test, and already tensions rose to new heights. To make matters worse, senior officials of the S-1 committee had already started to arrive in Los Alamos to watch the test. Oppenheimer was manic and became furious with George Kistakowski, who was in charge of the implosion device. Kistakowski later recalled that Oppenheimer became so emotional that I offered him a month's salary against $10 that our implosion charge would work. That night, Oppie only managed to get four hours sleep. He awoke the next morning to good news. Hans Beth, who had spent the entire night picking apart the failed implosion device, called Oppie over breakfast to let him know that the test device failed because of blown circuits in the wiring and that Kistikowski's design was solid. The actual device should work just fine. With one obstacle removed, Oppie was now free to worry about the weather. 
the Los Alamos meteorologist, Jack Hubbard, had forecast a violent overnight storm. Late that evening, Oppie sat in the Trinity Base Camp mess hall, nervously drinking black coffee and rolling one cigarette after another while listening to rain pelt the tin roof. Fermi and some of the other scientists worried that if the weather did not clear before they conducted the test, the strong winds would spread radioactive rain all across the New Mexican desert. For one reason or another, many of the scientists urged postponement of the test. Both Oppenheimer and Groves knew that wasn't an option. For Oppie, he knew that his scientists had been pushed to the breaking point to get the bomb ready for testing. He told the general, if we postpone, I'll never get my people up to pitch again. Groves was under pressure from the Truman administration to send word of a successful test to the president before the end of the Potsdam conference. By 2.30 a.m., the site was being pummeled by 30-mile-an-hour winds and severe thunderstorms. Oppie and Groves paced the ground outside South Bunker, 10,000 yards from Point Zero, and nervously scanned the horizon for any sign of a break in the weather. At 4 a.m., Hubbard presented his final forecast to Bainbridge, who called Oppenheimer and Groves' assistant, General Thomas Farrell. After discussing Hubbard's forecast, Oppie and Farrell decided that the test would be scheduled for 5.30 a.m. At 5.10, the voice of Sam Allison came across the loudspeakers. It is now 0 minus 20 minutes. Starting at 2 a.m., buses loaded with scientists from Los Alamos began arriving at Compania Hill, the viewing site set up 20 miles northwest of Point Zero. Observers were told to lay face down on the desert sand with their feet pointed towards zero at the time of detonation. As Teller recalled, No one complied. We were determined to look the beast in the eye. I wouldn't turn away. But having made all those calculations, I thought the blast might be bigger than expected, so I put on some suntan lotion. After coating his exposed skin in lotion, Teller passed the bottle around to the other scientists. An onlooker, disturbed by this strange precaution, recalled, It was an eerie sight to see a number of our highest-ranking scientists seriously rubbing sunburn lotion on their faces and hands in the pitch blackness of the night, 25 miles from the expected flash. At 5.25 a.m., a siren went off at base camp, 10 miles from Point Zero. Unlike their colleagues at Copania Hill, the men at base camp planned to follow the safety protocols. Shallow trenches had been dug to protect observers from the blast wave. I.I. Rabbi, Victor Weiskopf, James Conant, Vannevar Bush, and General Groves all got down in the sand facing south away from the blast. Finding a spot between Conant and Bush, Groves recalled thinking, only of what I would do if when the countdown got to zero, nothing happened. Groves was not alone in his worry. At S-10,000, the tensions were even more palpable. The control post was crowded and active as everyone carefully attended to their assignments. At about T-2 minutes, someone heard Oppenheimer say, Lord, these affairs are hard on the heart. Robert joined his brother Frank, General Farrell, and a few others on the ground just outside the control bunker to watch the blast. In the final moments, Farrell watched Oppenheimer intently. He later recalled, 
Dr. Oppenheimer, on whom had rested a very heavy burden, grew tenser as the last seconds ticked off. He scarcely breathed. For the last few seconds, he stared directly ahead. As the final countdown began, observers at every viewing post covered their eyes with dark sunglasses or welding masks. At T-45 seconds, an automatic countdown kicked in. Only Donald Hornig, assigned to the knife switch, could stop the test now. He recalled later, Now the sequence of events was all controlled by the automatic timer, except that I had the knife switch, which could stop the test at any moment up until the actual firing. I don't think I have ever been keyed up as I was during the actual firing. I kept telling myself, the least flicker of that needle and you have to act. It kept on coming down to zero. And I kept saying, your reaction time is about half a second and you can't relax for even a fraction of a second. My eyes were glued on the dial and my hand was on the switch. I could hear the timer counting. Three, two, one. The needle fell to zero. At 5.29 and 45 seconds in the morning of Monday, July 16th, 1945, the Jornada del Morta lit up with an intensity never before seen on Earth. Even the scientists who had been working on the project for years did not know what to expect. Norris Bradbury captured the moment best. Most experiences in life can be comprehended by prior experiences, but the atom bomb did not fit into any preconceptions possessed by anybody. I.I. Rabi described the experience of watching the detonation from his trench at base camp. We were lying there, very tense in the early dawn, and there were just a few streaks of gold in the east. You could see your neighbor very dimly. Those 10 seconds were the longest 10 seconds that I have ever experienced. Suddenly, there was an enormous flash of light, the brightest light I have ever seen, that I think anyone has ever seen. It blasted, it pounced, it bored its way right through you. It was a vision which was seen with more than the eye. It seemed to last forever. You wish it would stop. Altogether, it lasted about two seconds. Finally, it was over, diminishing. And we looked toward the place where the bomb had been. There was an enormous ball of fire which grew and grew and it rolled as it grew. It went up into the air in yellow flashes and into scarlet and green. It looked menacing. It seemed to come toward one. A new thing had just been born. A new control. A new understanding of man, which man had acquired over nature. Robert Serber witnessed the event from the viewing station at Compania Hill. At the instant of the explosion, I was looking directly at it, with no eye protection of any kind. I saw first a yellow glow, which grew almost instantly to an overwhelming white flash, so intense that I was completely blinded. By 20 or 30 seconds after the explosion, I was regaining normal vision. The grandeur and magnitude of the phenomena were completely breathtaking. Emilio Sergei captures how the terror of the moment overwhelmed the senses of those that witnessed it. The most striking impression was that of an overwhelmingly bright light. I was flabbergasted by the new spectacle. We saw the whole sky flash with unbelievable brightness. 
I believe that for a moment, I thought the explosion might set fire to the atmosphere and thus finish the Earth, even though I knew that this was not possible. Frank Oppenheimer, with his brother at S-10,000, conveyed the feeling of being so close to the detonation. And so there was the sense of this ominous cloud hanging over us. It was so brilliant purple with all the radioactivity glowing. And it just seemed to hang there forever. It must have been just a very short time until it went up. It was very terrifying. And the thunder from the blast, it never seemed to stop. Not like an ordinary echo with thunder. It just kept echoing back and forth in that you are not at Del Muerto. It was a very scary time when it went off. An unexpected consequence of the test was the intensity of the heat. Robert Morrison recalls how even the scientists that had worked on the project for years were surprised to feel the heat of this massive explosion on their skin. From 10 miles away, we saw the unbelievably brilliant flash. That was not the most impressive thing. We knew it was going to be blinding. We wore welder's glasses. The thing that got me was not the flash, but the blinding heat of a bright day on your face in the cold desert morning. It was like opening a hot oven with the sun coming out like a sunrise. Even for all the unexpected, the scientists were the most prepared for what would happen if the test worked. They had done the calculations and had a general idea of the magnitude of the explosion. Brigadier General Thomas Farrell, however, did not. 30 seconds after the explosion came first the air blast pressing hard against people and things to be followed almost immediately by the strong, sustained, awesome roar which warned of doomsday and made us feel that we puny things were blasphemous to dare tamper with the forces heretofore reserved to the Almighty. Words are inadequate tools for the job of acquainting those not present with the physical, mental, and psychological effects. It had to be witnessed to be realized. When the bomb exploded, there was relief at S-10,000. The success of Trinity validated years of work and millions of dollars of investment. Kistakowski, who had wagered a month's salary against $10, slapped Oppie on the back in congratulations and tried to claim his winnings. The director distractedly showed Kistakowski his empty wallet and gave him an IOU instead. I.I. Rabbi, who saw Oppie soon after the test, recalled that his walk was like high noon. I think it's the best I could describe it, this kind of strut. He'd done it. Frank, who was with Robert in the forward bunker, said, I wish I would remember what my brother said, but I can't. But I think we just said, it worked. I think that's what we said, both of us. It worked. When Oppie arrived at base camp, he and Groves exchanged congratulations. They soon set to work drafting a report for Stimson at Potsdam. Oppie told Groves he estimated the magnitude of the blast to be the equivalent of 21,000 tons of TNT. Fermi had conducted his own small experiment by dropping little scraps of paper when the bomb went off. By measuring how far the shockwave pushed the paper, Fermi estimated that the magnitude of the explosion was at least equivalent to 10,000 tons of TNT. Later that day, Herbert Anderson rode out to point zero in a lead-lined tank to get a more accurate measurement. He radioed back, 
stating that the test results confirmed an explosion of 18,600 tons. Despite their success, the elation quickly faded as the reality of what had been accomplished settled in. I.I. Rabi later stated, Naturally, we were very jubilant over the outcome of the experiment. We turned to one another and offered congratulations for the first few minutes. Then there was a chill, which was not the morning cold. It was the chill that came to one when one thought, as for instance, when I thought, of my wooden house in Cambridge and my laboratory in New York and of the millions of people living around there and this power of nature which we had first understood it to be, well, there it was. Rabbi was not the only one considering the implications of what they had created. A dark specter soon descended over Los Alamos. Before leaving the control bunker at S-10,000, Oppenheimer turned to shake hands with Ken Bainbridge. As he did, Bainbridge looked him in the eye and muttered, Now we're all sons of bitches. Oppie's own mood darkened as he considered the Frankenstein he had helped bring into existence. Twenty years later, he recalled the moments after Trinity in a documentary called The Decision to Drop the Bomb. We waited until the blast had passed, walked out of the shelter, and then it was extremely solemn. We knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed. A few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty, and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. <laughs>